0: Welcome to a midweek edition of Writers' Festival Radio. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. My name is Sean Wilson, I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm your host. Today's episode is Agency and Consent, and features two astounding authors in conversation with Julie S. Lalonde. Julie is an author and advocate for women's rights and is a sought-after educator who made national headlines for challenging universities and taking on Canada's top military brass on the issue of equal rights. The festival was lucky enough to host the national launch for her remarkable memoir, Resilience is Futile, The Life and Death of Julie Lalonde, back in March. Feels like a lifetime ago, but just a day or two after that event, everything shut down. Julie's book and the two novels will be spotlighting today, Little Scratch by Rebecca Watson and Consent by Anna Mel Lyon, are available from Perfect Books on Elgin Street or from pretty much any independent bookseller. And I want to thank you all in advance for supporting booksellers and authors during this difficult time. Annabelle Lyon's first novel, The Golden Mean, was a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, the Governor General's Award, the Ethel Wilson Prize, and the Commonwealth Prize. It won the Writer's Trust Prize and has been translated into 14 languages. She writes and teaches in BC, and her latest publication, long-listed for the 2020 Giller Prize, is the novel, Consent. Centered on two sets of sisters whose lives are braided together. When tragedy changes them forever, Consent explores the complexities of familial duty and how love can become entangled with guilt, resentment, and regret. Here's a quick taste of the novel, followed by her conversation with Julie.
1: Over the next three months, Robert appeared sporadically, but only when she was by herself. He asked for her money. He asked for her time. He asked her not to ignore him, not to disrespect him. He asked after Maddie. The fourth time, the cruiser came too late. She asked the officers why they couldn't make it stop. We can't find him. But they were looking, they said. It was an active file. They had some leads. They asked if he'd said what he wanted the money for. Shelter? Medicine? Probably meth. You think meth? The thinness, the twitchiness, the sores on his face. Probably meth, Sarah said. Though, of course, she wasn't that kind of doctor. Finally, she decided to tell Maddie to warn her. She brought home ginger broccoli, glass noodles, and green tea ice cream. Listen, sweetie, Sarah said. Maddie seemed to understand, and not to mind, that Sarah would accompany her to as many of her activities as possible from now on. She would walk her to workshop and craft night and her community living dances. Sarah had negotiated a partial work-from-home arrangement with her dean until the matter was resolved. She could take her laptop to the dances and so on. Will he go to prison? Maddie asked. I don't know. Sarah started clearing the table. I hope not. We've still got a restraining order. That means a judge will tell him to leave us alone. If he's good about that, he won't have to. I don't want him to. Maddie watched Sarah take the ice cream from the freezer. I don't either. Sarah dished them both bowls, her own portion smaller than Maddie's. She very badly wanted him to go away for a long time. One of these days, the cruiser would make it in time. His harangues had been getting longer lately, and she had started going outside with her phone in her hand, ready to speed dial as soon as she saw him. One day, he wouldn't notice and would still be talking when the police came, and then they would take him away.
2: Hello, my name is Julie S. Lalonde. My pronouns are she and L, and I am delighted to be joined by Annabelle today. Hello, Annabelle. Hi, Julie. Annabelle here. My pronouns are she and hers. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to be talking to you. And from the jump, I have to say a huge congratulations on being on the list for the Giller Prize when your book is not even out yet, which oh, is so, so exciting. Much. How does it feel? It is exciting.
1: I mean, most of all, I feel honored to be in the company of such amazing other writers on there. I think it's a really um, diverse and challenging and interesting list this year. And it just, I I feel really, I feel really privileged just to be in that company.
2: Well, I'm rooting for you. (laughs) I know it's early days, but I'm rooting for you. Thank you. I mean, I guess that brings me to my biggest question of all, which is you launched a book in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I did that earlier this year. I was going to say, so did you? Yeah. Yeah, It's a weird experience. So you not only are putting your book out into the world in a pandemic, but you're also, you know, this exciting opportunity with the Giller Prize. So how, like, how's this been? I mean, this is not your first book, but it's, I'm assuming your first book in the middle of a pandemic.
1: (laughs) It's my first book in a pandemic. Yeah. I wasn't alive in 1918. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I think because of my particular personality, I'm very shy. I'm very introverted. I like being at home. Um, This has actually been really... (laughs) I feel terrible saying it, but I actually, I really like doing it this way. Um, I'm not... You know, I I'm, mean, I'm, I'm accustomed to teaching online. I teach creative writing at, at UBC and, you know, online teaching was one of my specialties even before the pandemic. It was something that I really worked on. And so I feel comfortable in this environment. I know everybody talks about Zoom fatigue and, you know, never want to look at another screen. And I feel like I, I like these interactions personally. I find that we get to the point really quickly Um They tend to be, you know, online interactions tend to be more focused. They're also really accessible. And that's something I'm super conscious of. Like if you're someone who wouldn't normally be able to get out to a physical event, Zoom brings those events to you. And so I think maybe I'm a little bit of an outlier, but I really do, you know, I I like the online stuff.
2: Well, I think what I've heard too from other folks who are in the process of writing and doing writing work right now is that it's being a writer is a pretty solitary existence to begin with um Mm -hmm. so the yeah the quarantine lifestyle (laughs) um is is kind of conducive to like cocooning in your house um i think especially now as we're heading into the colder months like you know we started Mm -hmm. with colder months where any that it feels yeah it feels almost like okay i'm i'm hunkering down and i'm i'm getting this thing done so
1: how was it for you can i ask with your amazing book i have to say how much i loved resilience is futile it's it's a wonderful powerful
2: book Thank you. Thank you so much. It's, it's been very odd because I was, I straddled it. Like my book came out literally the day the pandemic was declared. It was the uh, day of my book launch. Yeah. March 11th. Oh no. I remember it well. Um, and my last launch and interview was on March 13th and it was literally like the last segment of the last ever live episode in person of the social, like it was just such a, like an apocalyptic time. So I had like a taste of it. Uh, And then, yeah, I've been doing interviews from my house. And um, so I'm, I definitely missed out on the, um, yeah, the connecting with people around, you know, because my book is intense and also personal. And so I wonder if, you know, even though you, you know, say you identify as a kind of an introverted person, do you, yeah, are you going to be missing that opportunity to connect with people face to face who are moved by your work or challenged by your work? If I'm being
1: completely candid with you, um, Julie, no, not really, because I'm I'm, you know, I I am very shy and I'm very um protective of my sources of inspiration, let's put it that way. I mean, you know, there's there's material in the book where, you know, I'm I'm I am sort of drawing from people I've known in my life, and I, I want to be protective of those people. And, you know, I find, like I say, I find it easier when there's a little bit of a, a sort of interface between us than the the big face-to-face things where, where, you know, I just, I tend to kind of, I'm on a turtle a little bit and just pull into my shell anyway. So I'm, again, I'm a weirdo though. Like I'm, you know, who enjoys a pandemic? Annabelle does, you know, it's like, no, I don't enjoy it, but I mean, it just, this works for me.
2: <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I really have heard from so many people that are thriving under these conditions. And, and you know, it's interesting that you said that about the, the boundaries around when you write things, whether it's fiction or nonfiction that touch on real, real stuff, <laughs> that there's yeah. almost this kind of false sense of intimacy that it creates where people feel like, yeah. oh, this is now sharing time. Um, yeah. And so I'm wondering, you know, you writing about so many interesting, but really timely topics, right? We're talking about consent and Bodily autonomy and all of these things that have been really at the forefront for the last few years. And so, I'm wondering, in terms of your writing process, like, were you writing prior to Canada having this, you know, post Gomeshi Me Too conversation? Like, had these ideas already been in there and then were influenced by our times, or did what was happening in the world really kind of push you to write this story?
1: No, this way predates that stuff. So, The second chapter, This was initially it began life as a short story, and that's now, I think, chapter two of this book. And I published that way back in 2005, and that was the story of... So this novel, it features sort of two sets of sisters, and there's one sister who's a caregiver to the other in each of these pairings. And so the, the chapter that was initially published was a woman who became the caregiver to her uh, mentally handicapped sister. And uh, while she was sort of away for a couple of days, the sister actually got married to someone and she had to come back and deal with that. And I published that way back in 2005, but it felt like something that was never really finished. It was something that I, I just kept coming back to and kept working on. And then eventually the other storyline came in and um, I wanted to sort of incorporate some thriller aspects as well. Uh, and it was just no, I mean, it, I mean, of course, it's it's wrong to say it wasn't influenced by everything in the zeitgeist or, or you know, doesn't speak to that. But it definitely it's um, it goes way back for me. It's something I've been wrestling with for a long time.
2: I found it so interesting and brilliant, but challenging, I think, especially if you aren't spending your days thinking about these issues that you really I mean, the title is hella timely, right? You my <laughs> consent is a conversation that, you know, I teach consent for a living, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you really looked at it from like 65 different angles that haven't been explored. So those pieces around capacity to give consent. Yep. So that seemed to me seemed to be kind of the, a real, like the crux of it is around like complicating our conversations around consent, but particularly around capacity and bodily autonomy. Is that how you, like, Is those were those the things you were really trying to pull apart and look at Absolutely. I mean, as I dug into
1: the the subject matter, the concept just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and I realized, okay, consent. We're we're used to thinking of it fairly narrowly um, in relation to sexual assault, in relation to you know those those ridiculous conversations about well, what was she wearing, and why was she out by herself, and you know that sort of thing. But, of course, it's broader than that, and of course, it also goes beyond sexual consent. I mean, there's the idea of consent to caregiving, which was a big one that I wanted to look at if there if you have a family member who is in need of care, you know it's hard to say no, it's hard to you know, and then does that the consent to the caregiving you know what what is what does that look like exactly? Um, and then if you consent to something. But, you know, there was something that was withheld from you that you didn't understand about what you were consenting to. Like, what does that do to the idea of consent? And, you know, it was really interesting to me that the title was one of the very last pieces to to fall into place with this book. And we really did talk about it, you know, the, the editorial team, because they were saying, well, it's not really a Me Too book, is it? And I thought, oh, how interesting, you know, that, that we're even gatekeeping Me Too, that we're saying, well, you know, we've got a character with a mental handicap, so that can't be Me Too. Well... I mean, I would argue it is a Me Too book and more, you know. Um, but yeah, all the things that you're pointing to capacity and bodily autonomy and those things, like it's it's fascinating to me.
2: And I was really, I mean, like I said, talking about sex and consent is it's just so unbelievably timely. But for me in particular, that piece that you said around the caregiver relationship is also extremely timely in the context of COVID and these conversations <laughs> around things like even elder care, um and you know who's being burdened with that care and the fact that we're just sort of understood that it's women's work um and you need to be sacrificial and you need to you know accept low pay and terrible working conditions so I found that also really interesting and and I'm hoping like are you getting a sense that those threads will be pulled at because that was yeah yeah
1: I hope so I mean it comes up in the context of schools as well now that kids are kind of People are trying to filter kids back into the school system. And, you know, I've I've read and, and heard so many interviews with teachers, especially in, in, you know, higher population density areas like in the States, saying, you know, I'm not really given a choice. So they're they're almost in a position of caregiving. They're caring for these children so the parents can go out and work. And it's a terrible catch twenty two. But again, that question of consent, I think, is very live in, in that sort of context.
2: And one of the other thing, so people think of me as the, you know, I don't know if you get that, but whenever there's like a terrible story of violence against women in the news or something, people are like, thought of you. And you're like, cool. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> you're so, so do, much more than that. Yeah, you really So know.
2: I have other hobbies that includes loving high fem, fems, high fem things. And I was so I, like, I found it was such beautiful lush descriptions of like the, all of the pieces are on fashion and perfume um, and like the senses and all of their understanding, and so can we talk, talk about that? Like, is that yeah. is that something that you does that speak to you? Is that like a little bit of animal oh, yeah. or did you, yeah? Okay, yeah, oh, I yeah. love that. Yeah. I love it so much. I was like, tell me all the things about the dress. <laughs> No, I love that stuff
1: too, and you would not know it to look at me because I wear jeans and t shirts like a normal person. But you know, what I really love is this idea of fashion and haute couture, particularly as an art form that is absolutely as legit and as powerful and as emotional as any other art form. You know, fashion can be very sculptural. It can be very subversive and, you know, I would look at a collection by Alexander McQueen or you know, an Iris Van Herpen who's doing amazing things with technology and fashion or Ray Kawakubo who's doing these sort of postmodern deconstructivist kind of things and I think that fashion is very underappreciated and it's very um, it's sort of looked down on like, oh, you like fashion? Like, that's so trivial. That's so and i think that that is there's a sort of gendered aspect to that there's a homophobic aspect to that and you know i would want to make the argument and for perfume as well that these are art forms these are amazing emotional art forms and you know i'm not talking about like going to the mall and you know whatever but i mean at at its at its sort of you know, the the sort of collections that designers will put out just for show that never get made and never get sold. And then it's watered down versions of those things that that end up hitting the market. But, you know, in its purest form, I think I I love that stuff. I think it's beautiful.
2: And I feel like it also created such a beautiful atmosphere in the book, because, again, I love those things, but the the focus on perfume and scents, Mm -hmm. and I know, um that i think one of the cover, i'm not sure what cover but one of the covers of your book is a beautiful perfume bottle on the front um mm-hmm. and so yeah the idea of infusing that throughout to sort of create atmosphere so do you have a beautiful perfume collection that makes us all jealous or is this no.
1: place <laughs> i can't afford it i can't afford it i have one or two which i really love but no that's i can't afford it um I think part of the, the sort of the interest in the fashion and the perfume, this is very much the, the, the character of Sarah, who is the um, sister of the the person with a disability. And, you know, she is also an alcoholic and I think that she, and she's very intellectual. She's, she intellectualizes her interests in, in fashion, for instance, she's very interested in fashion history. And I think that she is, you know she has an addictive personality and she's looking to sort of subsume herself in things she's looking to get absorbed by things as a way of coping with all the things going on in her life so she she sinks into alcohol she sinks into beauty she sinks into you know these sorts of things and I was really interested in exploring that as well because I think we see that you know in modern culture I mentioned Zara and fast fashion and the way that people are just compelled to go out and constantly buy you know ten dollar this and five dollar that and there is this sort of compulsive addictive quality to that and I'm sort of I'm interested in like where does that come from what is that what what itch is that scratching when we when we feel compelled to to you know accumulate fashion to accumulate clothes it's interesting I
2: love this stuff I love it yeah I love it it's the ethics
1: of it right like it's the it's a sort of ethical exploration of what these things mean and and I'm always interested in ethics
2: And, and you can see that in the book, right? One of the, you know, you have someone whose specialty is ethics. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but yeah, just a way of sort of infusing femininity throughout the book. Like it just felt, I, yeah, it was so clearly looked at from the female gaze, which I found so unbelievably refreshing because yeah, so often when someone shows an interest in fashion in a book or in a film, it's a cue to the audience that they're vapid, um, you know, that they're, a narcissist or they're egotistical and they only care about appearances. And so I thought it was such a brilliant way of showing complexity and really pairing like this high intellect person with this deep knowledge of yeah, fashion history and a deep, not like, you know, someone who could recognize good tailoring when they saw it.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for, thank you for saying that. Thank you for noticing that. I really appreciate
2: that. I love ambiguous endings i am a huge Mm -hmm. fan of leaving things uh untied and loose because that's how the world works and so was that are you one of those people that when you you know you said this one chapter these two characters kind of haunted you this whole time and you really wanted to expand it so when you sat down to say okay this is a bigger sort of more fulsome story did you already know how you wanted it to end or are you one of those folks that like it's coming out as it's coming out
1: No, I didn't know how I wanted it to end. Um, It initially was a novella just featuring that one pair of sisters. I got it to about 30,000 words and talked a lot with my editor about, well, how can we take this and expand it and make it into a novel? And I found that I kept kind of resisting that because I felt as though the story was complete and tight in and of itself. I liked it the way it was. I didn't want to shoehorn in stuff that, you know, wasn't particularly adding to our understanding of the characters, so I ended up coming up instead with this idea of this other set of sisters and that there would be an intersection, that there would be a point of a sort of node of intersection between them and their stories and that ended up being a fifth character, a male character. Um, And then it became a matter of sort of structuring and I am an outliner, I am a planner. So at that point, I did sort of plan fairly carefully, like how I wanted to move back and forth between the stories and how I wanted them to progress. And then the ending, um, I think once and, and bringing in that second set of sisters, I also brought in a little bit more of a thriller kind of element as well and there was more suspense and there was there were secrets and you know I I think once I brought them in and understood how I wanted the five characters you know there's a reason why there's a spider on the cover right we've got the spider in the middle and then this web around him of these women and you know once I understood that um the ending then came for me it's not really an ambiguous ending I know I've been a little bit sly with it but I know exactly what happens at the end
2: which I also love, <laughs> um, I do very much. Um, yeah. And so I was, yeah, it's just, it's very, and I say challenging in the best way. Um, I just think, yeah, it really forces people to pull apart these issues that people, I think, understand, think they understand at a macro level, like, yeah, consent. Yeah. Like people on their own bodies. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but at every turn, you just complicate and complicate and complicate Um, And I think that will hopefully provoke some really good discussion that's my hope and is that is that your hope like it did you are you intentional about there being a message around let's unpack this stuff or for you is it just I want you to come on this ride with me with this cast of characters.
1: I think it's more the latter, honestly. Like, I, I feel as though it's a bit of a sort of fool's game to sort of say, this is what I want after the book goes out in the world. This is what I want you to take from it. I mean, right? people are going to take from books what they take, right? And they're going to okay. they're gonna find what they find. You know, some things are going to speak to some people. Other things are going to speak to others. So I feel a little bit as though once the book's gone out into the world, it's out of my hands. Like, I can't control any kind of reaction or outcome. Um, I hope that people feel the book is worth their time. I hope that... You know, if it does make people um, think about consent in a more nuanced and 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 wider with a bit of a wider scope, I think um, I feel as though that that is sort of I've done what I tried to explore myself in the writing. Um, it's more, you know, these are I, I I think complicated books like this, and I'm guessing you found the same with the book that you worked on. You know that you're as much informing and interrogating yourself and then it's like other people are getting to watch that process you can't control what they take from it but you know it's it's I hope it's an act of you know vulnerability and and a little bit of generosity to say watch me as I try and sort through these things for myself because that's really for me that's really what this novel is
2: and it's also I would say the most honest right and I think that's why I love um yeah that what, I mean, it's a masterclass, frankly, in show not tell. Um, And there's so much that's unsaid in the book that you, um that, yeah, that forces you to sort of be like, huh, huh, you know, you think I ha- you have it figured out. And then there's, oh, there's another corner to look at. But ultimately, yeah, I, I think it's a tension that I think you're also experiencing, which is You know, can we talk about these things that are frankly universal conversations women have been having since the beginning of time, but they're inherently political when you have them in this day and age. Um, And you can't just write a story. I'm thinking about, for example, the controversy around My Dark Vanessa um, and, you know, writing this book about sexual violence and then people asking her a thousand questions about her own experiences and what is your message and her just saying, I wanted to write a book about complicated characters And it just becomes inherently political in that sense. Right. Do you get that sense? Right. That right now, anything has to do with women ends up being, you know, politicized in some way. It's
1: unavoidable. It's unavoidable. But again, I mean, I feel as though that's other people sort of taking it and doing with it what they will. And that's not necessarily me dictating that conversation or, you know, you know, trying to trying to hold that conversation. Again, I feel as though, you know, at a certain level, it's me trying to understand things going on. It's me, you know, trying to write characters with, you know, prose and and, and sort of make those things elegant and, and effective. And beyond that, I just, I don't... It's a tough one, you know. It's it, it's tough to sort of say yes, I want it to be this statement on X, or no, I just want it to be this story about these people. Like it's it's of course, it, you know, it would be it would be um, disingenuous of me to to deny that it's going to have those overtones or those connections. But at the same time, for me, you know, it's something else as well. So. I'm not, I feel like I'm being very vague and not really answering <laughs> your question, but I appreciate what you had to say about the, about the show. Don't tell. And kind of the negative space in there too. Cause that was something I really had fun playing with and exploiting the kind of thriller aspect. I wanted there to be some scenes where you got to the end and just your reaction is, wait, what? Like I thought I knew what happened there. And then wait, what, what, no, no, that, that happened. That was what was actually going on. And I really enjoyed putting those together. That was just fun.
2: It was, yeah, it was, so, I was just like, Oh my God. You know, you're like thinking about something <laughs> pegged and then you're like, okay, we're going down this road instead. Like, I just truly, I was, yeah, I was really taken from the very first page. I was like, okay, these are really fulsome characters that feel real to me. Um, and But yeah, still somewhat glamorous. Um, so there's sort of like, yeah, it was just, there was so much there that was so, and it's quite short. So like, yeah. you're, you're going there, which I think is so powerful to me that you're just like you you're getting people to think about a thousand things and then before you know it you're like oh no it's over <laughs> because it's just you like you said the thriller aspects really come through and so um I guess like what's what's next like are you cooking up new ideas or are you sort of sitting with with them like do you feel like you're done with these characters you put them out into the world and you're like yeah. now go flourish my children and I'm working on something else or are you kind of yeah. sitting in a bit of a limbo space
1: no, um, I'm done with these characters, absolutely for sure. Uh, and I'm actually working on some nonfiction at the moment. It's a fairly yeah, and a fairly personal thing, and looking at some sort of family stories and stuff. And I don't know if that's ever going to make it out into the world, but it's a really nice sort of palate cleanser after after being engaged with this with this novel for so long. It's it's nice to just. something that involves a little more research and and it feels a little more um in a way detached from me like it's not about me trying to work through you know things that i don't understand it's more me saying oh look at this interesting thing i can tell you this great story you know which is not you know it, it feels different to me it feels different it's not memoir particularly um what i'm working on at the moment
2: so my last question is, are you one of those people who can't read other people while they're writing or needs to read other people to help inform their writing?
1: Oh, I read I read other books all the time. And I will say that the, there were three books that were really important to me while I was working on consent. Um, there was a this the book that went with the re- retrospective of Alexander McQueen's work at the Metropolitan Museum called Savage Beauty, which is mostly images of, of his work, which I, I find endlessly interesting and challenging and moving. Um, there was Jean De, Jean-Dominique Jean Bovis' The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which was also made into a movie about somebody. He actually wrote this book while he was suffering locked-in syndrome. He couldn't. Um, communicate. He was he was paralyzed and couldn't communicate with the world except through blinking and would blink up letters. And there's a character in in Consent who is in that condition. And then the third book was um, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. And, you know, the, the initial crime in that book is the murder of a money lender. So Raskolnikov, our student character with his high ethical ideals, decides it's better for everybody if he murders this old woman who's so predatory and mean. But when he goes to do it, of course, it's it's very messy because he murders her, but then she has a mentally handicapped sister who also lives there, and he wasn't expecting her to be there. So he has to murder her too. And I thought, what if we told this story from the point of view of the women? So, of course, you can't kill them, (laughs) at least not at the start, because then you don't have a story. and then sort of, I had to sort of adapt other sort of um, aspects of that story. So him going back again, again, that's one of the things that people know about crime and punishment is Raskolnikov keeps going back to the site of the murder because he's tormented by guilt and he can't keep away. He's going back and back and back. That became stalking in, in consent where he keeps going back and back and back to see the sisters again and again and again, even after, you know, he's been told he's not supposed to do that anymore. So um it was it was interesting to play with that. Eventually, it did evolve away, um, but I tried to hold on to a few aspects of *Crime and Punishment*. And there's a few little Easter eggs in there for people who know the book well. Um, hopefully, you'll recognize one or two little things.
2: I love that. Yeah, That and was a that very long book, answer to a no, very no, short no, no, question. I, no, sorry. I was like, no, I you, I'm just like yes, 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 of course. And also that Alexander McQueen book. I mean, it's such an inspiration. You know this book, right? I do. Oh my god. Of it's, course, it's, it's yeah. stunning he's such an interesting person. His work was so revolutionary. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, that book, every time I see it at a bookstore, it, like, I feel like it's calling out to me again, because it's just like, it's a yeah. like Mona Lisa. It's constantly, um, it's such he's, a powerful amazing. Yeah. I almost,
1: I almost used, I want to share this quote with you from him, because I almost used it as an epigraph to the book. And now I'm a little bit kicking myself that I didn't. Um, can I read this? Yes, Is that oh okay? my god, please. Um, He said, I design clothes because I don't want women to look all innocent and naive. I want women to look stronger. I don't like women to be taken advantage of. I don't like men whistling at women in the street. I think they deserve more respect. I like men to keep their distance from women. I like men to be stunned by an entrance. I've seen a woman get nearly beaten to death by her husband. I know what misogyny is. I want people to be afraid of the women I dress. don't you love him more oh
2: yes that literally gave me chills I'm like whatever I'll brilliant. send it to you
1: I'll send it please, to you it's just do. he's amazing
2: yeah yeah What? it's such an and his life was so tragic but oh I know I mean just such a visionary um and I'm not surprised that you've said that I'm not surprised that that was an influence in the book because the fashion elements felt so real and really from a perspective of like a true lover of fashion and style Um, and so yeah I love I love the weaving of all of the femme stuff the sensory stuff the the creating of atmosphere like I said the the things that go unsaid Um, it's a beautiful complicated challenging cannot put it down book that I will be recommending for folks for time to come and I have to say if you're listening to this and you are in a book club this is like prime book club material because there's so much to talk about um, and it's just so damn good. So thank you so much for joining me for this chat. I well, really appreciate it. Julie,
1: thank you so much. And I want to put in an equal plug for your, your book, Resilience is Futile, The Life and Death and Life of Julius Lalonde, which I found absolutely you know, magnificent, brave and vulnerable and powerful and all the good things. So it's mutual, man.
0: That was Annabelle Lyon in conversation with Julie Lalonde. Our next guest is Rebecca Watson, She writes for publications including the Financial Times, the Times Literary Supplement, and Granta. Her debut novel, Little Scratch, reveals a young woman's every thought over the course of one deceptively ordinary day. Moving and slyly profound, Little Scratch is a defiantly playful look at how our minds function in and survive our darkest moments. Here's a taste of the writing, followed by her conversation with Julie.
3: Remembering the tepid water by my bed this morning awake to a dry mouth Then hungover now seemingly fine Fine as in not hungover anyway I'm not fine in the general sense. I've made that clear reserved enough space in my head for acknowledging that I'm not fine But yes, it is the point in the day where this morning no longer feels like this morning And yet it was obviously I didn't have time to dawdle, to float. I just drank water and showered and hurried, and felt okay because I didn't have time to feel any other way. A new tactic, perhaps. Setting my alarm late, overfilling my time. I know that this will not work, but I consider it, if only to fill the space where I could be thinking something else. Yes. From now on, I'll arrive everywhere late and start everything late, and oversubscribe until my eyes burst and my head hurts. It already does, but even more, I guess body stretched until I do not know who I am or what I want or where I am or how I got here or what happened to me that time, hands on me, mouth full, saying no, 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 yes, that time then, which I'm not thinking about. Instead, I think about art galleries. A decent diversion, no? I decide, without much decisiveness, I will no longer go to art galleries with other people. It is too much. Having to give an allotted time to each painting, staring without seeing, has this painting been given enough attention? Will my companions suppose I've appreciated it now? It's not that I don't like art naturally, it's just I can't like it all. I don't have the reputation that allows me to be selective, to walk into a room and examine this one and this one, cursory glance we'll at the rest, shake head and move on. Sometimes, I think, Art is incredible, a popular opinion, but sometimes I think, what do I actually get out of it? How much more am I getting than when I see an attractive person on the tube and take the time to notice each part of their outfit clocking through, studying the fringing on their trousers and the way they've drawn liner across their lids before moving back to staring into nothing? What is the difference, really, truly, honestly? Yes, other times, this seems to me a ridiculous argument to make, one I do not agree with whatsoever and would not condone, would frown on if someone were to make it. But I cannot stand still. I find myself flitting, doubting I have the capacity to appreciate or understand, wondering if there is even anything there to understand. And when I flit to this, I fear I will not return. And all the while... I must firmly assert that I'm not thinking it, firmly assert my appreciation and understanding of art, never allowed to have doubts. And these doubts which I have regardless mean even when I'm not having doubts, I remember that I've had them and fear that I might still be faking it somehow.
2: Your book came out this summer. How's it been in the context of COVID? I mean, I'm sure it's not what you imagined when you wrote your book, but...
3: No, um, I definitely, when you kind of think about the few things that might be going on i guess the pandemic isn't isn't the first thing to sort of flash through your head um yeah it's also not out in the uk yet so uh, that got delayed so it's actually out in january um so it's that kind of weird thing of living in a world where you suddenly feel very distant from people generally and then like your book sailing off and kind of having a life in a different continent um and like kind of those weird echoes um I don't know. I mean, I think it's very grounding, isn't it? It's kind of hard for you to be too bothered about the way things are different or uh, playing out in a way that you wouldn't expect because there's so much more important things going on that in a way you kind of just reminded about, uh, no offence to my own book and, and the book world, you know, like how little these things matter in the sort of grand scheme of things.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But it, I had no idea that your book wasn't out where you even live. So it must be, yeah, super bananas just to have people in Canada reading and enjoying your book and you're like, my own people can not read my book yet, so it's good.
3: Yeah, my friends are like, why are these people reading this book before me? I'm like, sorry guys, gotta wait. So it's it's funny though, like, because obviously the topic is like the working day, um and like office life, uh, which has suddenly become a time capsule and when I was expecting it to be published, the one thing I was kind of expecting is that people would be reading it maybe on the commute or, like, in the lunch break and kind of having that weird overlap. And certainly these are these themes that almost feel, like, nostalgic.
2: Yeah. And I was so – I mean, your book is phenomenal, and I am not in the business of gassing people up. So, <laughs> like, truly <Thank> <laughs> so unbelievably powerful. And one of the things that really struck me is how, like, your observations were so unbelievably on point about – The yeah, the mundane sort of monotonous, like you go to work, the grind of the commute, the down to, you know, when you're reading, was it TripAdvisor reviews where you're like, these people clearly showed up at this restaurant thinking it was already going to suck, like all of these observations that were just so unbelievably on point. And so I wonder, have you just always been that kind of person that pays like acute attention to the world around you all the time? Or did you have to sort of force yourself to think in that level of detail in order to write it?
3: Um, I think it's something that's always kind of obsessed me. Um, I definitely kind of, I notice these very small things and kind of get, like, a level of enjoyment or hypocrisy or... I don't know, I'm kind of fasc- fascinated by neuroticism. Um, I think Virginia Woolf, like, put me onto this because she, that's a massive thing that she does, and I read her, like, at a very formative point. You know, I was reading her when I was, I don't know, um, 15, 16, you know, at a point where I... Regardless, like things feel very profound. And then, like getting into s- someone's mindset like that, it's gonna it's gonna feel like something huge. And she's very good at the way something small can illustrate something beyond just just a movement. You know, like so the way someone places their teacup down uh, can actually like illustrate their own like tension. Or um, she's very good on people feeling things isolated. I like a group of people all, all actually essentially feeling exactly the same thing whilst being certain that they themselves are alone in their own emotion um and I think that kind of triggered a level of analysis I started doing just a daily life and once you start doing that it's very hard to stop.
2: yeah it almost becomes its own neurosis to be obsessing about other people's neuroses right you just like can't unsee it once you see it yeah <laughs> <laughs> So,
3: yeah, I'm also aware that, like, it's kind of probably more interesting to me than anyone else. And so I, I will kind of bring something up and, and then be like, why? No one cares, you know, and, and actually the kind of the process of writing it makes it more interesting. Um, but if you just talk about it in real life, everyone's just like, yeah,
2: great <laughs> yeah. <good> story. <laughs> and they're like, cool, you went to work. Cool. cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I found it so interesting when I was reading kind of the commentary and the, the reviews and just the, even the description of your book has references to other books because the style is so unique and so um I, one, what is it like to have people say like in the spirit of um is it Newberryport, Ducks Newburyport um which was like yeah, a thousand yeah. pages of one sentence. Um like what is it like to have your book be compared to books that actually have are topically so very different but just based on format people are like you know that book it's like this even though it's not even remotely like mm. that at all. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah I mean it, it's funny because I don't I often don't recognize the comparisons that are made and I definitely when I was writing it I wasn't sure what to compare it to and you know there, there were no direct influences so I, I can't say oh this form came from reading this person. Um And I think a lot of it is our kind of discomfort with anything that breaks out of very traditional prose. So people need explanation, they need reasoning, they need grounding in a way that you don't necessarily need if it's, you know, like, more expected. Um, Which, as it stands, kind of just means that you get comparisons that don't really say that much. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, for you, if you, like, when you're sort of explaining your book to people is it important for you to state that the form is unique or for you is it more important to talk about the actual content of the book or do they have equal value to you like do you see the form as like the niche part of it or are you just like this is a book about an important subject that we should talk about
3: I kind of see uh the form as completely intertwined with the voice that to me the protagonist is the form and those things are kind of the same thing um, and you know I've been asked would I write a sequel or would I use this form to tell someone else's story um, and to the latter question the answer at least to me at the moment is no because I would be I would be appropriating her voice like this the, the way this form works is um, kind of reflecting the way that her thought patterns her neuroticisms um, her inability to distill her own experience has essentially fragmented her own head like I look at the page and I see that as a moment in time inside her head and I see you know uh, the right hand side is her sensory, her exterior perceptions the left hand side is kind of her internal and um, these kind of split into channels or whatever Um, and that's you know I I kind of see the the book you know Little Scratch to me is kind of the name of the protagonist and this is so much just, just her that. Yeah, it's, it's just
2: that. And to me, I mean, as someone who's been doing work on violence against women for a long time, who has been sexually assaulted, what I found, like, so powerful is, have you been watching I May Destroy You? Okay. I have, Did yes. you also love yeah. it?
3: I did. I actually waited to watch it because there was so much hype going on that I was very scared about being disappointed. So I waited a few months and only watched it it's last week.
2: so good. And to me, that's the comparison. Mm. Like, that's what I thought of when I was reading your book in the sense that you are trying to live your life forgetting this thing that constantly finds a way to like make itself known. And that it's hard to, like, people, I think in the context of Me Too, people think there's a very clear way in which you tell your story. Something bad happens to you and you declare it, and then people support you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But it's just way more messier than that. And so, to me, I feel like, was it important for you? I mean, writing a book in this context of Me Too, which we just cannot ignore, it's everywhere all the time. Was it important for you to put the messy parts in there and even the conclusion like just really making it like shit's messy (laughs) and I'm gonna make sure that you know that yeah
3: (laughs) yeah I think I mean it was very important you know so I mean a lot of it is about kind of self-deceit and um the inevitable splintering when you're essentially not telling yourself everything about what's going on in your own head Um, and I think there's a kind of an obsession with smooth narratives and in um, survivors being able to narrate their stories in a clear way, in a way that essentially, like, wins people over, and that's so disingenuous as to, like, how trauma works, which, like, trauma literally, you know, splits memories, it fractures things. Um, So it it was very important to me that the form and her perception of her experience worked like that. Um i mean it, it kind of you know i wanted to base i wanted to write against linearity. I wanted linearity to be something that uh was elusive and it was something that she herself was seeking um but but as a reader, you weren't gonna be weren't gonna be fed that um i think also you know there there are so many tropes about survivors as kind of branded victims um it's like a it's a very like one tone thing you know you you rarely i mean i at least rarely see victims or survivors being uh, shown as, you know, people that want to be sexualized or want to, like, have fun or can laugh. And um, this, looking at a day in a life, the idea was to essentially have variation. I wanted to show all the different ways in which someone can feel whilst also suffering from trauma. Um, and the answer to that is, like, every single type of feeling is possible.
2: And so I've... For the readers it was interesting when I was reading it myself and also when I was reading people's experiences with the book is that one on the one I found myself wanting to read it really quickly, sort of in that the way my own brain works. Like it was just like, but then part of me was like, no, no, no. I feel like I need to slow down to really like absorb every single chunk. So how did you envision readers? Yeah. Experiencing little scratch.
3: I, I mean, I love to ask people how they read it. Um, you know finding out I mean how did you read it do you did you read it across did you go down did you mix it up like what was it kind of the thing that you
2: I it was a bit of both yeah so some of the pages I would just take a second and like look at it and then try to figure it out and then I would go back and yeah I tried to read it you know left column right column Then I was like oh no that's not what's happening oh no and then some of them are in between and then I just thought like I'm gonna take it as a whole for each page um but yeah my because there's almost like a rhythm to it I felt myself kind of going into this almost like I was reading spoken word or something, like just finding myself kind of rolling with it and then thinking, oh, maybe I need to read it slower to really let it sink in. And so I wonder, yeah, so you're getting a lot of mixed response of people who are reading it in different ways?
3: I think so. I mean, I think people generally answer the same way and that essentially there's not a set way they do it. So as, which is how I envisage it and how I hoped people would read it is that as you go through, you kind of depending on what kind of material you're being presented with, there are different ways that you read it. So if you're in a dialogue scene or whether you're in a scene where you're having three different thoughts the protagonist is going through at the same time, you will deal with these things differently. Um, I didn't want to be prescriptive, not that I have the power, uh, because the book's out there and people do what they want. But, I mean, for me, it was kind of like uh, a game, you know? It was something that people could immerse themselves in. It was something that can make choices about. Um, And for me, it was... uh, A lot of the fun was the idea of, like, the reader becoming the protagonist and kind of challenging them to, like, immerse themselves to the stage where they feel as if these thoughts are their thoughts. Um, And, you know, there are so many distractions and um, things that happen simultaneously. And I kind of hoped in providing those distractions nothing else would distract because I feel like often when you're reading one uh, narrative, like you naturally, particularly now, in a time when we are used to flipping between things and other things coming in our way, like, you kind of can't sustain something for too long without at least being tempted to look at something else. And so in the book, giving you two, three, four things to look at at the same time, I kind of hope that actually, in a way, that contains you more. Um, Which sounds like maybe that did work, but I don't know. Um, But I wanted it to be, yeah... But I wanted it to be intuitive, definitely. Um, I don't know, I, I, I kind of find it quite exciting. I, I've recorded the audiobook recently, um, which was really weird for me because I, like, essentially had to make the decisions for the reader. Um, and, I mean, I have, like... I definitely know how... what order I want it to, to go in, but it was still kind of disappointing being like, OK, now I've done it for you. Um,
2: yeah, and so... When you were writing it, well, one, I was wondering about the audiobook actually, because I was like, "Ooh, that would have been such an interesting experience. Because, yeah, you got to pick a path and stick with it um, so people know what's going on for sure. Um, but when you were writing it, did you write it in that visual way, like were you when you were thinking or did it come to you intuitively as you were writing of like, oh, this would be this? Or did you have the format for each section kind of fully formed in your head and then you worked your magic that way?
3: um it was definitely like more by instinct than anything I mean I wrote by hand and I had like quite a wide notepad and so I would I would you know as I was going through I would go between different kind of channels on the page um and I was really I was really moving between those things very very naturally um it was all kind of like a quite surreal experience I I mean I, I had her voice like very loud in my head and I felt like you know, it was, it was a very quick writing. I mean, the rhythm was really important for me, and so often I would be really like scribbling stuff down, needing to get things down very quickly, almost to like keep keep in time with the movement that it was kind of going through. Um, and yeah, it was kind of like I mean, it was cathartic without it being my own catharsis. I kind of felt like I was um, realizing something for the character in doing it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was
2: strange. <laughs> well, the end result is unbelievably powerful. So you now have this book that I guess the world will get to enjoy in all of its entirety next year. (laughs) But what is your, your hope for little scratch? Like, was it, is it yeah to be just a really interesting, unique reading experience of a unique story and perspective, or is there an inherent kind of political, is it inherently political, I guess, to write a book about sexual violence in the era that we're in?
3: Um, Well, yes, I think so. Um, I think it would be hard... I think it's hard not to write politically, to be honest. Um, I think that's kind of instinct, because uh, even when you're writing... At least for me, when I'm writing fiction, it may not be my own voice, but uh, it's a voice that I empathise with and agree with often. Um, And, you know, it, it, it was kind of two different things. I was both trying to explore create creativity and I was thinking about you know the challenge of immediacy um and how to represent a, a singular moment um of overlap within a structure that actually like pushes away from that and discourages you from it um and so it was a challenge of immediacy but then it was also the challenge of uh everyday experience and um being oppressed or ignored um and unsupported and how to show that within a structure um and it was it was important for me to to write that i think um to kind of look at the level of fixation and neurosis and um struggle that the, the most kind of basic things need i mean this this is a day that she fights through, you know, it's, it's, she has to like propel herself through. And for other people, this would be kind of a Friday. I mean, it's, yes, it's set on a Friday um, on a sort of boring office day. And for other people, this would be something that was kind of coasted through. Um, But for her, it's like every minute is felt every minute is had to be forced through. Um, And so it, it was political in the sense that I needed the reader to, to have to go through that too and it's not necessarily an easy read But you have to that's the thing about having to take the reins is that you, to a degree you have to like live that and at least you know it's for far less time than this protagonist does who is contained in this book forever living it again and again and again um but for, for the reader at least I wanted them to have to force themselves through it and I think it you know it's it's not a struggle but there's no there's no stopping you know there's intentionally no breaks there's no chapters it's it's ongoing time, um, it's time that never stops, it's not, you know, 12 o'clock, okay, now the afternoon, it's, um, you know, every single second. Um, and I think that's not something that I've at least read or seen a lot, is the actual just fact of existence, you know, and sustained existence, not, like, kind of a moment of climax. It's just, like, the pure, like, struggle to exist. Totally.
2: Well, I guess my big question is what's, what's next? I mean, you blew people's socks off with your first ever novel <laughs> <laughs> happened during a pandemic. Um, <laughs> so yeah, what's, what's next for you? What do you envision?
3: Well, um, I'm writing a second book at the moment. Um, Cause you're obviously which, an underachiever. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, I should do another one. Um, which, at the moment, I think is really difficult. I feel like it's kind of assumed that, oh, this is a perfect time to be a writer because uh, something huge is happening and also you have more time. Um, but I think that there's a serious lack of stimulus, you know? And I I find that, f- as a writer, what I need is a kind of level of ease, you know? I need to, like, be experiencing things and, and kind of be an unaffected observer um and right now there's so much going on that kind of finding the means or the, the, the just the kind of meaning you know like the kind of persistence to do it right now is very hard um but I'm slogging through um and writing something which is again in the head of someone but it's across more time and it's not ongoing um and it's uh there are other voices as well uh mostly within her own head um people who are significant within her, within her own life uh or past who kind of rise and won't won't leave her alone um and so i'm working on that and it's it's difficult um i think little scratch was an incredibly like magic process for me as a writer it was kind of a gift um I both started with the question you know I I had a very clear question from the get-go which was like how to write immediacy and I had this character who charmed me and he was very loud and welcoming in my head um and that's kind of I think that's a a very kind of classic first book thing before you really you're really sure who you are as a writer and and what you're capable, capable of, you can kind of explore and listen to those instincts in a, in a far easier way. Um, and now, you know, you have all the second album difficulties of, you know, listening to other people and thinking about craft and all of these tedious things that uh, just wind you up in knots.
2: Well, good luck. <laughs> But I'm so excited to hear you're writing another book because I was like, there's no way in hell the world is going to continue without another piece of your work in it. So, um, yeah, thank you for joining us and chatting with us and we're so sad that you can't be here in Ottawa. Um, but hopefully, uh, the world will get better and you can come and and see us. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me.
0: That was Julie S. Lalonde in conversation with Rebecca Watson about her novel, Little Scratch, which the New Yorker hailed as extraordinary. Thank you all for listening today. Thanks to Julie Lalonde, Annabelle Lyon, and Rebecca Watson for participating. Please take a moment to rate and review this podcast, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We'll send you a tax receipt and our boundless gratitude, best of all, with your support, we'll be able to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org. All you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Join us on Friday for the next edition of Writers Festival Radio, Truth as Fiction and Fiction as Truth, featuring Helen Humphreys and Will Ferguson. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubey. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson.